don't know if you remember back here, some of you won't because you're that young, but in 1984, um, Sir Bob Geldof and Midjur uh, got a band, a, a bunch of musicians together, this super band, this uber band, uh, from what was uh, called then Band Aid. Uh, they recorded and produced a single, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas? It came out, it sold millions of copies, and they did a massive concert. This was mirrored across the pond, wasn't it, uh, in America. They raised millions upon millions of pounds for those who were dying of starvation in Ethiopia, Sudan, and Central Africa at the time. As a result, they sent shiploads of uh, food and medical supplies uh, to those very needy nations. The sad truth was, though, that much of that which was sent for those people uh, was stolen by corrupt governments and then it was sold onto neighbouring nations to fund the arms race of the area. Uh, many of the uh, leaders of those nations actually became very, very wealthy in that time, lining their own pockets with money that was raised here for the starving people of Ethiopia. They took what did not belong to them. Now, interesting, that is, interestingly, that is exactly what is going on he, here in our passage today. Absalom, who we see again and again throughout these uh, chapters, is taking something which does not belong to him. It is not his to take. David is the king of God's kingdom, and Absalom is taking it from him. We'll look at what happens in a moment as we run through the story. But those of you here, uh, perhaps you're kind of new to church. You're new here as a church here or you're new to church completely. It's great that you're amongst us. And you may be thinking right now, probably with some kind of uh, idea, you know, what on earth are we doing here in this passage? A 3,000 year old history. Why on earth are we here? And honestly, I have to be truthful with you. Many churches would never turn to passages like this. Sadly, many churches treat the Old Testament part of the Bible in a way like you treat a, a little book in a corner of the nursery. You pick it out, you kind of open it up, you go, oh, this is a nice story, let's turn to this one. Now, the problem is then you have to sanitise everything. Because you know, we've seen all the bloodshed that goes on in the, in the Old Testament. They have to sanitise it. They make it slightly more palatable. And that's the way that many people treat the Old Testament. So why are we spending as a church 12 weeks looking through this 3,000-year-old history of what happened a long way, a long, uh, miles away from here? What are we doing? I mean, have we gone a bit like kind of crazy? Well, kind of a bit yes and a bit no, maybe on that one. You see, we are a little bit crazy because we are asking you and we are having to prepare something which takes a lot more effort. Listening to two massive chapters of the Bible, you've got to engage, haven't you? You've got to think. Especially when the stories are as macabre as they are. We've seen that over the last few weeks, it gets pretty dark at times. But as Paul showed us earlier, we're not crazy looking at these historical stories in the Old Testament because even though Jesus has now come, even though God has revealed himself through his Son, so that we can have relationship with him. The Old Testament, you see, is forever pointing us toward him, for our need of him. That the king that, that God placed, the, the anointed Messiah that he placed uh, as leading of his kingdom, was not enough. We needed someone greater. The Old Testament's whispering his name the whole time. Uh, God's promises, you see, haven't changed. They remain the same. 
In his love and his kindness, he offers blessing, the blessing of being in relationship with him, being his people in his place, under his rule. Uh, God's people have enjoyed that covenant relationship with God. But again and again, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the Bible speaks of the reality that is true in all of our lives. The people ignored God again and again. They turned their backs on God. Now that could be in hostile rebellion or just cool indifference. The Bible doesn't try to hide the dark realities of humanity. And the people have to face the consequences for their rebellion. But in God's mercy and his kindness, he doesn't give up. He provides us with the king that we really need. Now, when we get to the historical books of 1 and 2 Samuel that we've been looking at, the people have once again ignored God. They, they've d- demanded from him and sort of said, we need a king like all the other nations around us. God had warned them of that. And simply they're saying, look, I don't, we don't trust you as king. We want a leader like everyone else has got around us. They ignore God's warnings and finally Saul is anointed as king back in 1 Samuel. But as we've seen, after a time... He begins to put himself first rather than God first. And eventually then David is anointed as the king. He's the chosen one. And that brings us to the book of 2 Samuel, which we find ourselves in at the moment. And it begins because God's people have been such a mess. They, they, there's lots of infighting. That there are in two kingdoms at that point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's a divided nation. And David unites those kingdoms under God's rule. He establishes Jerusalem now as the capital city. And I guess most importantly, in the early chapters of 2 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem as that visual reminder that God is with his people, in his place, enjoying his blessing. But now God makes uh, some particular promises to David, the anointed Messiah, the king. In Jerusalem, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse uh, 16, God promises that David's house, uh, that is in his line, a kingdom will be established that will go on forever. And God is saying to David that his good eternal kingdom is going to come in his line. And it's all getting very exciting at this point. You're going to think, well, yes, it's brilliant. It's all, all the stuff in the past, all that, that was a bit horrible. But now, yay, David's here. The crowd are shouting. They're very, getting very excited. Because David, as we've seen, is, he's the king after God's own heart. That is, he rules in a way that we see he's the great leader. He, he rules with justice and kindness and mercy. And David lives his life in a way that honours God. He lives according to his covenants that he's made with God. And that goes on. There's victory. There's there's wonderful blessing. He pours out kindness on people around him. But then, crash. You get to chapters 11 and 12 and David stuffs up in what you can only describe as a royal way. God again is merciful and spares his life because he deserves death. But the rest of this book to Samuel is all about the consequences of David's rebellion and moral failure. Now, as we hear these stories, we aren't meant to look at these stories and point a finger. We love doing that as British people, don't we? We sit on our high horse and we point the finger, looking down our noses, our very long noses, and tutting. We're really good at tutting. The problem is we're no better. 
All these stories point us clearly to our need for a greater king, a better king, a king that will lovingly lead his people into the eternal kingdom of God. And we will see who that is as we go on. Let's pick up the story then as uh, it's been read to us so wonderfully. Last week, uh, you would have remember if you were here, but let me summarise if you weren't. There was the most probably disgusting story of the whole of the Bible, I think. It's certainly up there in the top five. We saw David's first son, Amnon. And again, we must be reminded that good history doesn't try to sanitise history. What you're seeing here is a good, accurate account of history. Amnon rapes his half-sister. More importantly to our story today, that is Absalom's sister, Tamar, who is raped. Absalom was rightly enraged, but then he goes too far, doesn't he? He he conspires to kill Amnon at the sheep-shearing festival of all places. And it goes down there. Amnon is killed, and Absalom has to flee. He did so for some time, he he kind of went away, but eventually, we saw at the end of last week, he kind of wheedled his way back into the palace, didn't he, with some clever trickery uh, uh, before his father. And when we get to our chapters today, he's back in the palace. And here we come to our first point today. Absalom's rebellion is to take the kingdom. That's what he's trying to do as we begin our passage today. He's trying to take his kingdom, he's trying to be king. He's trying to dethrone his father. He's trying to take something which just does not belong to him. But the thing is, he's very good at this. He's incredibly good at this. Last week we saw what an impressive man Absalom was. Do you remember? He had lots of hair. I had a bit of hair envy at that moment. Uh, He's a very handsome man. Yes, I was envious of that as well. And he's a very virile man, but we won't go there. He's the poster boy of the nation of Israel. He's a rugged Prince Harry type figure, you might say. Now look at the information you see in verse, 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. You see all these things about chariots and men running ahead of him. I don't get that so much down Dernsford Road, but there we go. It's a, he's got an image to protect Absalom. You know, he's a man who's a, he's a showman. He's a prince who likes to impress. But he's more than just show. Now, he, he also knows how to work the crowd as people came to the palace with issues of justice to be resolved. And that was a normal thing. That's the place of justice in the nation. There he was, offering his advice, his wisdom. Uh, You can imagine him offering the occasional murmur of empathy as these people poured out their struggles before him. You know, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. And then look, at verse 2, look what he said. Your claims are valid and proper. He's just kind of going along with them. He he couldn't help but point out that the king and his representatives, they weren't to be seen. It's very clever. See, Absalom, on the face of it, seems incredibly caring, doesn't he? Now, you can imagine him putting into uh, his conversations, oh, unfortunately, the king's not here to give you justice. Unfortunately, his representatives aren't to be seen, you know. I'm here. His ploy is simple, isn't it? He just wants to increase, very slow, dissatisfaction with David. And increase a longing for someone else to be judged. And there in verse 4, he kind of makes it very explicit, doesn't it? And Absalom would add, oh, if only I were appointed judge uh, in the land. And they get, at the end it says, I would see that they would receive justice. It's very clever, isn't he? Very clever indeed. Absalom didn't actually have to do the job, did he? He just had to claim that he could do the job. 
Seems to be a lot of that kind of talk going on right now, doesn't there? Oh, just west of us, over a, quite a large ocean. You know, verse 6, you can, say, you can see that it kind of comes to its climax, doesn't it? He stole the hearts of the swing states of Florida. And it, it, there's a lot of going on here, isn't there? You get the picture. Absalom is like a desperate politician just trying to get the votes. You know, look at verse 5. He takes hold of people. He kisses them. Just, just so you're clear in the culture, princes don't do that. It's like the politicians, you know, in this country when they go up north, go to the working men's club, they take off their tie, you know, they're, like, they're getting down with the old guys up there from the coal mines. You know, it's ridiculous. So, you know, oh, it's a baby. Quick, quick. Trump did this yesterday. Oh, a baby. Let me pick it up. And like, oh, yay. It's, it's crackers. Absalom is simply trying to show he's one of them. He's just like them. He's not. But we see in verse 6, he does it. He stole the hearts of the people. Absalom conspires. The plan is set in motion. And you read by the end of that section in verse 12, look at it, that he was gaining both political strength and followers. We see here, it's Absalom's rebellion to take the kingdom. Now, let's be clear. Although it's a very clever political kind of, uh, kind of coup going on here, it is terrible what he is doing. He is plotting and planning to take something that just was not his to take. He was going against his father, and most importantly, he was going against God, who had anointed King David. And we see that clearly, you know, that, that's kind of fairly obvious from the story, isn't it? Perhaps what we don't see, though, at first glance is the fact that. Sitting side by side, he, over here you have Absalom and his wickedness. But side by side to that is the truthfulness of God's word. Let me show you what I mean. This is absolutely extraordinary, see, because Absalom is carefully crafting a rebellion over here that will bring down the house of David, okay? But that is exactly the judgment that God had said would happen to David as justice for his own wickedness back in chapter 12, verse 10. Absalom is account accountable. He's responsible for all this wicked stuff that he's doing, but God is using this situation to bring about exactly what he promised would happen. And the point is this. Whatever it looks like, God is totally in control here. He is sovereign, even over the rebellion of Absalom. Now, it seems strange, but this, this tension uh, and reality, we see it throughout the whole Bible. And if you're a Christian here today, you will see it in your own lives too. The Apostle Peter, let's... Go forward a thousand or so years. The Apostle Peter, when he'd witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, and early in the book of Acts, he's there preaching about it. And he says a very similar thing. He spoke of those who crucified Jesus, and he said, they're responsible for killing him. They are accountable for killing Jesus. But, he says, God ordained it. It was in his plan all along. So we've seen, 
Absalom's rebellion is clear to take the kingdom. But we must learn this. Whatever we see around us in the world, however dark and perhaps how sad things get, even in your lives, However absent and however silent God appears to be. And and by the way, let me be clear about this. He is neither silent nor absent. But despite what it looks like and feels like for you right now, despite Absalom's rebellion to take the kingdom, God is sovereign. He is in control. And that is even true as this story keeps going and keeps getting darker. Let's look at that. Uh, the second uh, major chunk is uh, David's exile from the kingdom. We're going to look at that from uh, chapter 15, verse 13, really through to the end of chapter 16, though it continues as well. Now, the extraordinary thing about this David fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing a kingdom, what we call his exile, he's, he's moving out. The funny thing about this is all the various encounters that he has with people. I'm going to point out a few if I can along the way. I don't know if you notice them. There's a lot of individuals that kind of crop up, and Anna and Al did very well with all the rather awkward names as we went through. But there they were. This story includes six individuals. Do you know what the funny thing is? Next week, when we look at the passage when, when David comes back, there's, there's another six individuals that kind of mirror the six individuals as he goes out. And, it's funny that it, it kind of seems like someone might be in control over. Yeah. Strange how that happens. Let's look at some of these individuals as we walk through this amazing story. And it, it is a story of faith. First person we encounter is Ittai the Gittite. You don't want to say that fast, do you? But Ittai the Gittite. There he is. Look at verse 17 and 18. Now, what's happening here is quite normal. He, David is watching his men process out of Jerusalem. It's a very kind of royal, grandiose thing to do. And and you take responsibility for your men as they walk out. They're escaping Jerusalem. Then verse 19. Verse 19. Look at that. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. See, Ittai, as it says, he's a foreigner. He's a Gittite there. He'd only been with David for a very short time. And David very graciously says, hey, look, come on, come on. You don't have loyalty. to me. Go back, go back and you know, carry on with a normal life. You can be with Absalom in the new kingdom, the new regime. He releases Ittai, essentially. It was a free pass from what must have seemed like certain destruction, probably death, if he'd stayed with David's. But look at Ittai. He's not having any of it, is he? Look at him. He makes this double oath. Look at verse 21. A double oath. And he commits himself and even his children to King David. God's anointed. He's loyal to God and the Messiah King. Ittai is described, I love this little phrase, it was in a commentator. He said, he's an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. So true, isn't it? And do you spot the irony as well? There you've got Ittai, the foreigner, who's willing to be loyal with his children to God's anointed. And then you've got the son, Absalom, who is utterly treacherous and disloyal. Now, we don't know if Ittai's loyalty benefited David in any way. He doesn't really crop up. He's simply here to show us that in our lives of faith, one way that God might support you 
is to provide you with a friend who will stand by you, even in your darkest times. Whether you are an Ittai, or if one comes your way, please remember that Ittais are gifts from a sovereign God, loyal friends in our lives of faith. Second person we uh, come across is Zadok. It's a cool name. He's a priest. Now you've got Zadok and Abiathar there as well. They're both priests and they're willing to go with David to, to, to leave Jerusalem. And they want to take the ark. That's their business. They're Levites. They're priests. They, they want to take the ark of the covenant with them. Get it out before Absalom comes into Jerusalem. We see that in verse 24. And they're basically thinking this. Come, come greedy old Absalom. He can have the city, but he's not going to have the priests. And he's not going to have the ark. We're going to get out. We're going to go with the true king, King David. They're not going to get the sign of God's presence. That's the big thing. Let's get it out of here quickly. Interestingly, though, David won't have this. In verse 25 and verse 26, he orders them to return to Jerusalem. Now, he's not wanting to make the same mistake that happened previously, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. David is showing quite a lot of wisdom here, and I think we need to appreciate that. He understands, you see, that if God is in his kindness, will ever bring him back and restore him to being king in Jerusalem. It's not going to be because of a piece of furniture. It's simply going to be because God in his favour is pouring out his kindness on David. There's, you see, just get the, how that applies to you and I. There's to be no superstitions about how you can be in relationship with God here or how you receive his favour. None of you are going to con God. He's like David, you just need to simply submit to him and know the freedom that faith brings. As a result, he doesn't bear the weight of deciding his faith. David is free from that. It's in God's hands, he says. He doesn't have to use the ark to kind of bend God's arm. He simply submits and lets go and and lets God do, do as he pleases in this situation. But with that kind of attitude, you think, oh, oh, we can all just sit back and let God do his thing. Yeah, let's just relax and, uh, and let God do anything. No, <clears throat> not at all. Do you notice how ingenious David is here? He doesn't suddenly sort of go, oh, you know, I'll just kind of forget <clears throat> and sit back on my sofa and do nothing. No, he sends Zadok and Abiathar back to the city to do their work, to keep the ark in the, in the city where it belongs. And the point is this, if we put our faith in God, that doesn't preclude us from using our heads or being active. We can work hard, we can think hard, we can live, but but we do so in faith, resting in the knowledge that God is in control. None of you are going to be able to con God by saying, hey, well, I've just come to church ten times in a row. That sorts me out. I'm sorry. It's all about God's favour and kindness. That's the only way that we have lives of faith and be in relationship with him. Next person we meet is Hushai, the confidant of David. Look at verse 30. Uh, In verse 30 we see David, he's heading out of Jerusalem. He's up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes. His treacherous son has ousted him. Verse 31, now look at that. He says, now David had been told about Athiopol is among the conspirators with Absalom used to be his guy, but now Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Athiopol's counsel into foolishness. 
Now this guy, Athiopo, I can't say his name, just bear with me on that one, but Athiopo is considered kind of the super wise man of Israel. He's like the Yoda figure, if you like, of this story. But even he can't stop God. Have you noticed that? God uses this dishevelled kind of civil servant. We've got a few of those around here. Um, not, not necessarily dishevelled, but anyway. Um, um, and he's called Hushai. And he uses this man to make this so wise Athiopol look so foolish. But that shouldn't surprise us if we're Christians here today, should it? That God can use dishevelled folks like Hushai. I mean, just look at us. God's answer in difficult situations is often just totally unguessable. You can't, you can't pick it out, can you? But it may seem so natural as we look back and see what God has done. Now he uses Hushar here. Who would have guessed? But it's such a clever and wise thing to do, isn't it? See, just because you don't see God's uh, hand at work in your life, it doesn't mean that he is absent. It doesn't mean that he is silent. You're probably just looking in the wrong places. In chapter 15, there are, there are hints of faith amidst a very dark time. David is still king, remember here, but he is a rejected king. And he's plodding up the Mount of Olives, weeping. Do you know what? The same thing will happen. The same scene will be repeated. A descendant of David, namely Jesus, who was the rightful but rejected king, will be seen on the Mount of Olives. You see how the Old Testament is pointing? He'd be weeping, not in the pain of crucifixion, but weeping over the predicament for those who would reject him, who would not put their faith in him as the eternal king of God's kingdom. Do you know what? More than anything else today, I hope and pray that is not you. And if you are rejecting the, the eternal king of God's eternal kingdom, Jesus is weeping. And I am too. Ittai, Zadok and Hushai are David's friends. But in chapter 16, we see kind of their opposite numbers come out. They come out to play. We see, I'm not going to go through these, I'm just going to run through them very quickly, but you get Zeba. Now, you might look at Zeba and think, oh, he's just a clever chap, isn't he? He gets loads of inheritance. Mr. Bishesh is kind of like, all oh, gets past him. He's just a manipulator. He lied through his teeth and he capitalised on David's trouble in order to line his own pockets. We see Shimei there. The, he's the man who curses. Extraordinary story. He just like chucks dirt and chucks stones down at David and his men for hours and hours and hours. I mean, he's quite persistent, isn't he? But he's just a man who curses. He says how worthless David is and he mocks the king and, as he flees his son. And then we get Athiopol. He's, he's just the man who betrays. In a sense, he's, he's like the Judas of the Old Testament, Athiopol. <clears throat> One moment he's loyal to David and then he flip-flops. The next he's loyal to, to, to Absalom. He's a treacherous betrayer. Now, I wish we had more time to look at each, but note this. I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna sound like a broken record by the end of today, but I'm gonna say it again. You know, despite all of this, despite the man who manipulates, despite the man who curses, despite the man who betrays, do you know what happens? God's word is still carried out, you know. You can't stop God's plans coming to pass. 
And that becomes more clear as we get to this final chapter. Uh, we haven't read it, but let me summarise it very quickly. I won't go through all of it, but yeah, I'll, I'll run through a few bits now. Now, Athiopol sets out his plan to Absalom. If you turn to chapter 17, and I'll kind of run through it very quickly. And he, he sets out a plan that, to, to go and get David. And it's a very, very good plan. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ingenious plan. But in steps Hushai, who's been appointed by David to go back and to curry favour with uh, Absalom. Uh, and there he is, and he appeals to Absalom. And he, he, his argument's in threefold, really. It's logical. It makes sense. Uh, it's cautious. He said, hey, hey, you don't want to go off tonight. You want to just wait around for a little while. You know, kind of plays caution, understands that. And then he, he just flatters a little bit. Hey, why don't we gather all the men together and just like, make a big show of it? And it will be fine. And it, if you, the great Absalom, would do that. Look at verse 14. <coughs> Absalom, and this is of chapter 17. So chapter 17, big number 17. Little number 14, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai and the Archite is better than that of Athiopol's. <gasps> the crowd gasped. Athiopol takes this quite badly. Go on to verse 23. When Athiopol saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, he set out for his house in his hometown, he put his house in order and then he hanged himself. And so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. We don't hear anymore. The end of Athiopo is here, but it's also the beginning of the end of Absalom as well. And the point I want to finish with is this. It's the same point that's been going throughout. God's providential rule is, um, it shows over his kingdom. We see God's providential rule over his kingdom. Look at the second half of verse 14 of chapter 17. I haven't read it yet, but look at it. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Athiopolt in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Oh, I've said it again and again, haven't I? We started with it, we've middled with it, we're going to finish with it. It has always been true, and it will always be true. God rules. He is sovereign. The Lord, it's in capitals there in, in that verse, uh, that is, uh, that's his covenant name, Yahweh. God, basically, has determined, he's decided to frustrate what was actually a really good plan, a great advice from Athiopol. He's decided to frustrate it. And can you imagine how Athiopol said, he's probably banging his head against the wall, he's saying, Absalom, this is the best plan, I'm the wise one, listen to me, if you want a military coup, I have given you it, right into your hands, go for it. But God wasn't behind that plan. And so he frustrated the plan. And the report of Athiopol's death is tragic. It is, yes. But surely it fortifies faith in God's people. Because this man, it's not, he's not a neutral character here. He's an enemy of God. He has turned his back on God and God's anointed King Messiah. He stood against him. And this is a, if like a sobering glimmer of what that results in if you stare to stand against God and his Messiah King. If you're doing that today, look, listen in. If that is you here today, and you come here and you think, oh, you know, I can just kind of con God with a little, I'll, I'll pop into church, maybe a few months, that'll be fine, I'll tip my cap at Christmas and... And so on. 
You cannot attack God in your British cool indifference. The king of God's good eternal kingdom. You cannot do that without sooner or later being crushed by the power of God in his full force of justice. The death of Athiopol is a sobering warning to anyone who would turn their backs on God and his love and kindness. I must finish. In a sense, I'm going to ask two questions. What has this got to do with you? If you are here today and you are not a Christian, and by that I mean, if you do not have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus' life, death and resurrection, one, I hope you feel incredibly welcome. We'd love to chat with you afterwards. All your scepticism, chuck it out at us. Let's hear it. Let's talk about it intelligently. But if that is you here today, please see from God's word that your ignoring of God is not falling on deaf ears. God is not distant. He is not silent. He has spoken to you through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who's the true king, the better king, the anointed Messiah of God's people, who has come to lead his people to the eternal kingdom of God, namely heaven. Listen to his words. He is not silent. Look down, it's right in front of you, in the Bible, God's word, Jesus' words to you. Hear God speak, please, and have the humility to listen. Secondly, though, if you're here today and you are a Christian, then I think you should realise that you stand, if you stand as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that is God's anointed Messiah King, stand loyal. Stand loyal. Don't be a zebra and live for your own short-term gain. Be an Ittai. Be a Hushai. We stand distinct from a culture around us, but know within that, over that, that God is sovereign. And that should be great comfort in and of itself. But best of all, though that our ultimate security does not come from any immunity from personal disaster, some of you will go through the worst of times in years to come. Our ultimate security doesn't come from the safety of our nation or a nation four and a half thousand miles across the Uh, the Atlantic our ultimate security does not come from any of those things whatsoever our ultimate security comes from the fact that God has established a kingdom in and through his son the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the line of David to fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel 7 and that kingdom will stand forever I wonder are you part of that kingdom that will stand forever you can be through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, these are stories which uh, seem at times very distant, but please bring them close to our hearts. May we learn from them. May we have the humility to see our need for the Lord Jesus in and through them. Amen.